when uh, Amy and I disagree, it's not about really big things. You know, the really big things. It's not about those. It's about, you know, how many hours ahead of time should we leave for the airport? <laughs> it is, what is the correct number of pillows that belong on the bed, and precisely where do they go? Why is it that I can't find anything even after she told me exactly where it is? We have different opinions on some things, but we're both on Team Jesus. That's the big thing. That's much different than the story of the newlywed couple who had their first fight. The new bride called the pastor who'd married them in a panic. She was hysterical. We've had our first fight, she sobbed. The pastor said, dry your tears, dear. Every couple goes through this. It's just your first fight. Don't worry. I know, she cried. But what do I do with the body? <laughs> There's a big gap between difference of opinion and deadly disunity. As we begin our series on the marks of a disciple, our focus is being Christ-centered. The foundation of the life of a disciple is Jesus. And the issue of unity is all wrapped up in that. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. This letter was written to the young church in the city of Corinth, ancient Corinth. And the economy of that city attracted people from all over the Roman Empire in that day. So it was a melting pot of ethnicities and of religions with as many as 700,000 inhabitants, at least of one-third of which were slaves. And some Corinthians were incredibly wealthy, while many of them lived in poverty. The Corinthian culture placed a high value on success and self-promotion and competitiveness and independence and pleasure-seeking. The city had a reputation. To act like a Corinthian was a synonym for decadence and prostitution. The Apostle Paul brought the good news about Jesus to Corinth in the year 50. And people accepted Jesus and a church was formed and Paul left in September of the year 51. Several years later, he heard about problems that were occurring in the congregation. The church had also sent him a letter asking questions about things which confused them. And the church ended up being mired in conflict and theological error. They faced sexual sin and gender confusion and selfishness and spiritual pride. And they adjusted their doctrine to fit in with the culture in which they lived. And so Paul wrote to address those problems and to answer their questions. This whole letter is extremely relevant for us today in our culture. But this morning we're just going to focus on the issue that the apostle tackles first, and that's disunity. Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me, my Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Notice how Paul refers to them as 
brothers, plural. He is emphasizing the family connection that they have in Christ. And you might object that that's a bit sexist, uh, but not so. When this Greek word adelphoi is used in the New Testament, it refers either to men or collectively to women and men. Uh, Context determines which of those that is. And because Paul addresses the entire church throughout this letter, this adelphoi should read sisters and brothers. And he, he doesn't say, I command you. He appeals to them. It's a strong encouragement. It's a firm request to family members. They are in relationship together through our Lord Jesus Christ, the threefold name. And I'll come back to that in a moment because it's important. Now, it's also important to understand that Paul is not begging them to all wear the same clothes, live in the same house, and eat the same food. He wants them to agree, literally, to say the same thing. Because they aren't agreeing. There are divisions the word is schismata, which means to be ripped apart. There are factions in this church. Uh, they are involved in some serious arguments with each other. And Chloe's people told him about it. Chloe, by the way, is a prominent businesswoman in Ephesus, and that's where Paul is when he's writing this letter to, to Corinth. Chloe had contacts in Corinth, either family members or business associates, and, and they told Paul what the church had not mentioned, that they were quarreling. You say, well, that doesn't sound bad, quarreling, that happens, but it is. This word for quarreling, Arides, uh, makes the list of sinful behavior in Romans chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 5. That, that those lists also include adultery and murder and drunkenness and heresy. So arguments, division, squabbling, conflict is sub-Christian behavior. So I want us to deal with two questions this morning. What creates disunity and what creates unity? What is it that causes disunity among God's people? And what is it that creates unity? Let's begin with that first question. What causes disunity in the church? Well, first of all, uniting around personality. You say, John, where do you get that? Where does that come from? Well, that's the next verse. Verse 12. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, everybody at Corinth had their favorite pastor. This wasn't about theology. This was about style, communication skills, personality. And they divided up, arguing over whose teaching was best, whose words carried more authority, were more interesting to listen to. And there were, well, Paul mentions four factions. The Paul faction. Paul, of course, is the God-ordained apostle to the Gentiles with excellent credentials, surely. And then there's Apollos. Apollos knew the scriptures inside and out, and he was a very eloquent, powerful speaker. And then there was Cephas. That's the rock. That's Peter. He was an original, one who had been with Jesus, one of the inner circle of three. And then another group just held out for Christ. And that sounds right, except that Paul talks about it as if it's wrong. Why? Well, apparently... 
there were those who rejected all human leaders. And it might have sounded like this. Well, you can have Peter and you can have Paul. Uh, We have no leader but Jesus. Kind of a hyper-spiritual approach. As wrong as it is to put one leader on a pedestal above others, uh, human leaders are necessary for the church. No one leader has a corner on truth. Uh, so, so the folks who were only listening to uh, Apollos' podcasts or his sermons on YouTube were fighting with those who used the St. Paul Study Bible. And they were all arguing with those who were wearing t-shirts that said, Peter rocks. <laughs> and instead of finding their identity in Christ, they attached to a spiritual leader. Jesus can't be cut up into little chunks, Paul says. So you can have your own different peace. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one name under heaven given among humans that will save us. So prizing personality creates division in the body of Christ. And certainly we have cults of celebrity in our world, in our culture. That's bad enough. But in the church of Jesus Christ, it is devastatingly terrible. And cults of personality have been around for a long time, and I think that they are endemic in our culture, not only in the United States, but around the world, in the church. And it's disaster, disaster. Well, what else causes disunity in the church? Making secondary things primary. Secondary things primary. Well, where do you get that, John? Well, that's the next verse. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, baptism, of course, is the public identification of one who follows Jesus. How thrilling it was for me, and I hope for many of you, to see people testify of their faith in Christ at our last baptismal service. We baptized folks live in one service and well they were all alive but that we we did that (laughs) but we taped that and then showed those baptisms the following sunday in the other three services so that everyone could participate and see it brought tears to my eyes each time i saw it witnessed it by going in the water under the water and coming up out of the water you identify with the death burial and resurrection of jesus that's what baptism does it's important stuff And if you follow Jesus, I encourage you to take this public step of identification with him that we uh, have again coming up in April, I believe. But you know what's not important? Who baptizes you? Not important at all. The Corinthians took something as spiritually significant as baptism and put the focus in the wrong place. The identity of the baptizer is unimportant. It's not about who baptizes you. It's about who you're baptized into. Now, Paul is not downgrading baptism. He's uplifting Christ. And when secondary things become primary things, it creates all kinds of problems. Doctrine matters. But there are secondary beliefs over which honest Christians can differ, and there are primary beliefs without which there is no salvation. Here are some primary beliefs. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. 
The Father, out of great love, sent his Son into this world to save his people from their sin. Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for sin, rose from the grave, defeating death. He is the only way of salvation. And all who put their trust in him alone are reborn as God's children. Their sins are wiped clean, and they're given new life now, and the assurance of eternal life to come. And the risen Jesus is returning with glory to rule and reign forever." Those are primary beliefs. I would die over those things. But then there are all kinds of secondary beliefs. Things which people who take the Bible seriously have different opinions about are still saved. Like, are you dunked or sprinkled when you get baptized? Is Jesus coming back before the tribulation, after the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or some other deal? Can women be pastors or must they never teach men? Do you prefer organ and piano or guitar and drums or bagpipes and kazoo choirs? Which is your preference? Do you use the King James Version, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, or Codex Syntacticus in the original Greek? Which one is your favorite? Do you celebrate communion with unleavened bread, with crackers, or with wafers that taste like styrofoam? Which is your choice? Do you speak in tongues or not? Those are secondary, and there's so many of those. Now, we can have a firm opinion about what the Bible says uh, on such things and discuss it, but I won't die for it. And when you raise a secondary issue to a primary issue, it becomes false teaching. That's the problem. So, some examples of that. If you said, well, if you haven't been dunked, you're not a Christian. Well, that raises the mode of baptism to primary when it's secondary. If you said, well, if you have a woman preacher, you're a heretic. Well, that makes an understanding of roles and responsibilities a primary doctrine. If someone said, well, if you listen to rock music, you're going to hell. You don't even pass go. Well, that moves a petty preference to a primary truth. If someone said, well, unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. Well, that changes a minor point of interpretation into a major doctrine. And not only was who baptized you secondary for Paul, but notice he says that baptism itself was secondary to preaching the gospel. And, and preaching the gospel was so important that Paul refused to dress it up with eloquent wisdom. Why? Because the culture of Corinth was obsessed with rhetorical brilliance. They were so caught up in style that they ignored substance. They preferred articulate artistry to transforming truth. And so Paul avoided this because secondary preferences formed prejudices that destroyed unity. So those are two things that Paul says cause disunity in the church. Well, what is it that creates unity? Well, Paul's said that. He appeals in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree. This threefold name that Paul uses is crucial. It's central. So let, let's look at each of those words. The term Lord refers to his deity. The Greek word is kyriou, and it's loaded with significance. My friend Dr. David Capes addresses this in his excellent book, The Divine Christ. Paul uses the word kyrio or kyrios 
over 200 times, and the vast majority of those refer to Jesus. Calling Jesus Lord is essentially saying he is the sovereign God. Very important title. And then Jesus, Isu, that's his name, the one who came to save. The angel said, call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Savior sacrificed his life on the cross for us. Christ, Christu, by the way, is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. He's the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the returning king. And his resurrection from the dead established his credentials as this anointed one, the Christ, who is the fulfillment of every promise God the Father made. And speaking to all those who put their trust in Christ alone, this Lord Jesus Christ, those who have been washed clean from sin by his blood and adopted into the family, Paul begs us to agree, literally, to say the same thing. Now, how's that possible, Paul? We've got people from all over the empire here, Paul, with all these different backgrounds. We've got business owners and slaves in the same church. We've got folks who are thrilled when Apollos speaks and others who go to sleep when you preach, Paul. We've got vegetarians and omnivores. We've got people who love rockabilly country gospel and others who are into hip-hop reggae fusion hymns. So how do we get together? And Paul says, I understand that. But don't let your preferences become prejudices. Don't let style, personality, or secondary issues become primary. Because the priority is the cross. The center is Christ. The foundation is the good news of Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is what it's all about. That's where the power is. And that gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Every baptism, even baptism, takes a back seat to this primary truth. Because unless we're Christ-centered, everything else gets muddled and we get off mission. And we have no time for petty differences. There's no place for small-mindedness. Some questions can't have multiple answers. Don't distort the clarity of the gospel. We must agree on the main thing. So what is it that creates unity in the church? Unity is created when we say the same thing about Jesus. So you've got to stop muttering about Paul. You've got to stop sputtering about Apollos. You've got to stop whining about Peter when it's all about Jesus. We've got to get rid of our cult of per human personality. We've got to tone down our strong opinions about things that are not primary. And one thing I know is that the older we get, the stronger our opinions get because we've held them for so long. And we grab onto these things that are not primary to the gospel and we hold on and we drive people away from Jesus by these secondary, non-essential issues. And that must change. When we say the same thing, and we say it loud and clear about Jesus, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. May we never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how divided our culture becomes, the church must agree about Jesus. I've been a full-time pastor for 43 years. And it's safe to say, any turmoil I've seen in local churches... Any crisis I've witnessed in relationships was caused by a failure to center on Christ. The disciple puts Jesus first over every desire, every demand, every duty. Now the promise I made to you 
when I became your pastor, is that every message God allows me to deliver will never fail to point to Jesus. That's my calling. From Genesis to Revelation, we will always look to discover more of the glory of Christ. Every text will point to his life, his death, his resurrection. The centrality of Christ is my passion. Back in the 1600s, John Flavel wrote, Christ shall be the center to which all the lines of my ministry shall be drawn. And that should be the life goal of every disciple. Let's make sure nothing gets in the way of this good news. There's no access to God except through Jesus. There's no gospel except from Jesus. Uh, There is no reason to sing about anything other than Jesus. This is the primary mark of the disciple. You see, for the disciple, Christ is the center of everything. And unless he is our greatest desire, our priorities are wrong. Unless he is our hope, we are lost. Unless he is our anchor, we're drifting. Unless he is our joy, our happiness is misplaced. And so I want to remind you of who this Jesus is. At his birth, the angel said, A Savior has been born to you. Simeon held this baby and prayed, My eyes have seen your salvation. John the Baptist pointed at him, declaring, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Crowds followed him, shouting, God has come to help his people. His disciples wondered, Who is this? Even the winds and the water obey him. Peter testified, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The military leader saw him on the cross and cried out, Surely he was the Son of God. Thomas the doubter touched the risen Christ and declared, My Lord and my God. And the disciples said, It is true, the Lord is risen. And they worshipped him. Now I've told you before that I wish I could describe him for you, but he's indescribable. The Bible has more than 250 descriptive names for Jesus because no one name can encompass him. His is the name that is above every name. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the branch of righteousness, the bright and morning star. He is the angel of Jehovah, the only mediator and my kinsman redeemer. He is the head of the body, the last Adam, the great shepherd, and the true vine. He is the only door, the bread of God, the chief cornerstone. He is the great high priest, the water of life, the bridegroom, the captain of salvation and the desire of all nations. My Jesus is the fountain of life, the friend of sinners. He is the express image of the invisible God, Emmanuel, God with us. That's who he is. And you may ask me, well, John, Where in this confusing world with a profusion of choices can I find the path to God? And I say, look to Jesus. He is the way. And John, how can I know what's real, what's true, when lies and scams and false advertising are everywhere? And I would say, come to Jesus, for he is the truth. But John, how can I find the answers to my existence? Who can tell me how to find satisfaction and joy and peace here and now? How can I discover what happens after the death? And I point you to my Jesus, who is the life. You see, the great question that you must answer is, what have you done with Jesus? 
And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then your life has Christ at its center. And the day of, uh, uh, is coming when the courts of heaven will ring with the words, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters, that we be united around Jesus. God has called us to lift up the name that is above every name. And if you will agree, there is power to change the world. Let's stand together and receive this benediction. Triune God, we worship you today. Father, we praise you for the great love you have lavished upon us. Jesus, we honor you as the image of the invisible God who redeemed us with your blood. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your power and presence in us right now. Give us unity as we follow Christ so that with one heart and one mouth, we will glorify you most of all. I ask this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.